Over the past few weeks, the coronavirus has driven markets into turmoil. We've seen stock markets plunge into bear market territory for the first time in over a decade, 10-year Treasury yields drop below 1% for the first time in history, and going forward, we expect a deep shock to economic growth. This market uncertainty has driven a lot of questions. What are the parallels between today and the financial crisis of 2008? Is this crisis worse? What signs are we looking for which suggest we are on the path to recovery? On this episode of The Bid, we asked five senior investment professionals from across BlackRock to answer the most pressing questions we've received from our clients on the coronavirus. I'm your host, Oscar Polito. Let's get to it. First, the most pressing question that I think we're all wondering about, is this 2008 all over again? In terms of the economic environment going into the 2008 crisis versus today, they could not be more different. That's Kate Moore, head of thematics for Global Allocation. In 2008, we had some serious and deep fractures in the economy. We had huge amounts of debt, both at the household and the corporate level. There was a white-hot housing market that was a bubble primed for bursting. And, you know, we had significant imbalances across not just the U.S., but the global economy. This crisis and this economic decline that we're experiencing, we know is caused by a health crisis. It is temporary. It is transitory. And while it is tragic and scary, it is just not the same. I must say that we've entered this crisis on much stronger ground. Unemployment levels were at record lows before we started. We had much more solid corporate balance sheets. I mean, companies just never re-levered up in the same way that they had before the financial crisis. Many companies actually are sitting on huge amounts of cash, which is a real positive. And you know, there were no shady operations in the housing market. I think perhaps most important, though, is the health of the consumer going into this crisis. Consumers were facing positive income growth. Their balance sheet looked good. Optimism was incredibly high over the last couple months until we started being faced with this health crisis. But I think there's a couple really big differences between 2008 and 2020 that should give people comfort. The first and most important is the speed of the policy response. We are just not destined to repeat the mistakes that we have had in the past. And by this, I mean policymakers know that markets stop panicking when they start panicking. And so we've seen a a huge number of measures on both the monetary side as well as the fiscal side, not just in the U.S., but globally, to address some of the stress in the market and in the economy. The second is markets are pricing in worst-case scenarios at a much faster speed than they had even in 2008. We were still digesting the information. The news flow wasn't quite the same. And there were large swaths of the economy which we could not really predict the outcomes. As a result, asset prices were not dislocated as quickly as they are today. And the third thing I would say is, especially for institutional investors, professional investors, there has been a rapid And I think very successful de-risking across these segments that is frankly a reaction to the experience of 2008. And I think we'll leave portfolios in much better shape as we endure the duration of this crisis and as we look to the next steps. As Kate mentioned, the global economy was in much better shape going into this crisis than it was in 2008. And one more difference, she notes. I think the music has gotten better over the last 12 years. 
Some of you might remember that Flowrida's low was topping the charts 12 years ago during the financial crisis. It wasn't just a catchy dance tune, but eerily appropriate given the market collapse. Low, low, low. Today, at least, we have a little Billie Eilish and I think a lot of good alt-rock. That should really help to calm people's nerves. Better music aside, taking a look at history can be helpful in understanding today's market volatility. Which brings us to our second question. What episodes in history can we look back on to better understand this crisis? We asked Jonathan Pingle, head of economics for Global Fixed Income, and Jeff Shen, co-chief investment officer of Active Equities, for their thoughts. I think episodes that I look back on for sort of very sharp down, but then relatively sharp climb out. You know, 1957, 58 recession here in the U.S. was actually partly due to a flu pandemic, actually, one of the major pandemics we had in the 20th century. That's Jonathan Pingle. Another dynamic that you could look to to think about the timing is China. When it went through SARS in 2003, the Chinese economy decelerated by nine percentage points in one quarter. And another example, a little bit, people forget about the 1980 recession here in the U.S. It was driven by consumers really shutting down during a credit crunch as the Federal Reserve and the administration at the time tried to get Americans. There was a famous plea to cut up your credit cards. And in fact, consumer credit contracted more sharply in 1980 than it did during the great financial crisis. Now, I think the downturn we're going through is probably going to be more severe in its trough than those three episodes. But they have a template of getting through the acute severity and then rebounding on the other end and returning to relatively solid growth. The risk is, I think, in this episode, even though I think that we'll have a very severe economic contraction that we will bounce out of, I think policymakers want to short circuit the negative feedback loops that can lead to dynamics like the great financial crisis, where there was an acute contraction and an extremely slow recovery, where the economy just kept contracting and contracting and contracting. Now, with the banks in good shape, hopefully that is one positive, and certainly policymakers appear to be moving quickly to prevent some of these worst-case outcomes. I think from a macroeconomy perspective, what we've been experiencing over the last couple of years is a bit reminiscent of the late 1990s, where we have seen growth stocks outperforming value stocks by a pretty large margin. That's Jeff Shen. We've also seen U.S. equity market outperforming rest of the world by a pretty large margin. And late 1990s, we've also seen that the Asian financial crisis that's causing quite a bit of trouble in Southeast Asia. There's also the Russia default that subsequently has caused long-term capital to blow up. So from a macroeconomy perspective, there's certainly a bit more of late 1990s that resembles a macro environment. The second episode that I think in the history is relevant is when we think about 9-11, which is certainly is an exogenous shock to the system, which has caused the New York Stock Exchange to close by about a week. And the market also dropped quite a bit until subsequently the market started to rally, given that the terrorist attack was certainly isolated, even though it's pretty devastating. So from these two relevant episodes, alongside with the 2008 financial crisis, I think none of these events are perfect match to what we are going through. At the same time, they are also useful guideposts as we think about what the future can unfold. One consistent view is that while there are similarities to the global financial crisis and other episodes of market volatility in the past, we're in a different environment today. 
The economy and the banking sector in particular were in good shape heading into the coronavirus shock. And as Kate mentioned, we've seen monetary and fiscal policymakers take action quickly. But there's no question that we're seeing the impact of the coronavirus on our daily lives. Bustling city streets are now empty. Restaurants and storefronts are closed. And working from home has become the new normal. Which brings us to the third question we're hearing from clients. Is the economic impact of the coronavirus going to be more severe than that of the financial crisis? I think it is clearly the case now that we see that the immediate shock itself, this kind of sudden stop in activity across the economy, unprecedented historically, is going to lead to a deeper and more precipitous shock to the economy than even what we saw in 2008. That's Mike Pyle, Global Chief Investment Strategist. To take just one example, initial claims for unemployment insurance. You know, two weeks ago, they were around 210,000 people near cyclical lows. Last week, we saw over 3.2 million people claim unemployment insurance benefits. That speed and scale of shock is literally unprecedented as long as these records have been kept. Even at the peak of the financial crisis, we only saw 650,000, 700,000 initial claims in any given week. So that's different. I think the ways in which we think the damage can and hopefully will be less severe is looking at the longer horizon. The global financial crisis 12 years ago didn't just include a kind of acute phase, but because of the hit, in particular to banks and the financial sector and the deleveraging that that necessitated over a period of many years, slowing the flow of new credit to businesses, households, slowing growth on a very long-term, multi-year basis. The GFC was really a series of accumulating damage to the economy over many years. And our base case and expectation here should the world and the virus itself cooperate a bit is we're going to see an unprecedented shock in the short term. But if policymakers are able to build this bridge across the chasm to the other side of the outbreak in a period that allows for some normalization in the next two to three quarters, that's a world where it doesn't need to be the case that the economy is sustained very significant, very substantial long-term damage, and hopefully allows businesses, small and large, households, to really begin kind of normalizing on a much more accelerated timeline versus what we saw 12 years ago. And so I think that gets to the core of the answer, which is over the next one to two quarters, yes, this is going to look significantly more severe than what we saw during the financial crisis. But with an effective policy response and hopefully in a couple quarters time, the opportunity to get back to normal, that accumulated damage that sort of builds up over many years that we saw during the global financial crisis and that gap between potential and what was actually being produced by the economy, we think that can dissipate a lot quicker and as a result, make this a less long lasting and less permanent hit to the economy. So in the short term, this could provide a deep shock to the global economy. But as Mike said, in the longer term, we believe that with an effective response from central banks and governments, this could result in less damage than the financial crisis. Our fourth question, what does the timeline look like for recovery? You know, I think one of the places that we're looking, as are a lot of people, is to the Asian economies, China, Korea, Singapore, Hong Kong, what have you, that really are at a different phase of this crisis and are now kind of looking to renormalize their activity. 
you know, there are some encouraging signs. There have been some setbacks. So I think sort of really keeping an eye on how far along they're able to get in the next month or two is going to allow us to get a window into what late Q3, Q4 looks like in Europe and the United States and some of these other economies that are being hit sort of relatively later in the cycle. And that's going to tell us whether or not this base case of a kind of one to two quarter shock is the right one or whether or not we're in a place where this is going to be something that's more long lasting and as a result, more significant in terms of the permanent damage that the economy takes on. As Mike mentioned, economies in Asia can tell us a lot about how quickly the global economy may be able to get back on track. The first known cases of the coronavirus started in China, but we're starting to see China's economy come back online. Our next question, to what extent has China recovered? And what lessons can the rest of the world learn from this? We turn back to Jeff Shen. We do track quite a bit of traditional and also non-traditional data sets in China. And from what we see is that capacity is certainly coming back online. Roughly speaking, 80 to 90% of the capacity is coming back online. And clearly, the parts that's the least infected by the disease certainly have seen capacity coming back a bit quicker versus Wuhan and the Hubei province still uh, very much slow to recover. The overall GDP hit to the Chinese economy is still very much up to debate. But we think that a negative 10% GDP hit in the first quarter of 2020 is certainly quite likely. Now, that can certainly change as the overall economy is coming back online. And we're seeing a bit of a ramp up in the production, especially in the manufacturing sector in the southern part of China. And I think the lessons learned here is probably that, you know, clearly, if you take a pretty aggressive public health response, there's certainly a possibility to flatten the curve from uh, overall the spread of the disease. And it's certainly not easy to do. There's quite a bit of a shock to the overall economic system. And I think there's also going to be some long-term consequences related to this kind of a sudden stop in the economy because some of the demand may not necessarily come back as economies start to normalize. I think it's also interesting to look at Southeast Asia, especially Singapore and Taiwan, and to a certain extent, South Korea, where I think some of these countries certainly have been bending the infection curve, really slowing down the spread of the disease. And I think over there is really a bit of a combination of some of these pretty aggressive public health response, alongside with a more gentle way of keeping the economy going. And it's actually notable to see that Singapore has never stopped its school from opening. So I think there's probably a bit of a middle ground as different countries which are trying to search for the solution for the coronavirus, that I think there is going to be a bit of a trade-off between a very aggressive public health response alongside with a need to keep the economy going. And I think that trade-off is certainly real for every country out there in the world. As Jeff mentioned, China's economy is beginning to show signs of coming back online, as are other countries in Asia. Our sixth question, what indicators are we looking at in China to show an inflection point towards recovery? I think we can think about the leading indicators in two categories. The first category would be around the political development. And the second one would be really sort of tracking the overall economy. So in the first category of the political development, I think the two things that we are tracking 
are number one is for President Xi Jinping to visit Wuhan, which is certainly being the epicenter of the virus infection. And President Xi did visit Wuhan earlier part of March, so that certainly is a good sign to see. The second indicator that we're tracking is also to see whether children are going back to school or not. The kids in China certainly have stopped going to school right after Chinese New Year, given the virus breakout. But that's also an area that we actually have seen pretty encouraging signs that not necessarily in some of the major cities yet, but kids are slowly and surely are going back to school. I think on the economic front, we certainly track both on the supply side, but also on the demand side. And on the supply side, we do look at industrial activities, but also some of the satellite image-driven metallic content on the ground, just to get a sense of whether there's actually more industrial activities around some of the manufacturing centers. And over there, we certainly see traffic is picking up and there's more metals moving around the ground. And that's consistent with some of the other high-frequency economic indicators that we see. Things are certainly coming back towards normal. And on the demand side, clearly things are going a little bit slower. We track credit card transaction information and we also track some of the search information. And that certainly seemed to indicate a slow, gradual recovery. But I would say that the supply side recovery seemed to be leading, while the demand side recovery has been slow, but it certainly has been there. Jeff mentioned some encouraging signs coming out of China. And as Kate and Mike mentioned earlier, central banks and governments both have implemented rigorous and coordinated policies in response to the coronavirus. Our next question, what should policymakers be thinking about on the road ahead? So looking ahead and thinking about the policy response, what needs to happen, two things are crucial. One, policymakers need to make up what I'm going to call the lost income. And the second, they need to ensure the safety and soundness of the financial system. That's Jonathan Pingle again. The reason for that is we don't want to go through the kind of deleveraging and credit contraction that leaves us in a position, you know, we'll have this acute, severe shutting down of the economy due to the social distancing and trying to prevent the spread of the virus. But on the back end of this, we do not then want to come out and have no credit provided, businesses failing, a default cycle, and the corresponding deleveraging that goes on with that, and that could take quarters if that kind of feedback loop is unleashed. So policymakers, and certainly the Federal Reserve, has moved quickly to provide credit to banks and other non-banks, broker-dealers, et cetera, to continue to keep the flow of credit moving to households and businesses. Crucial, crucial link. You know, for the last several weeks, it's sort of been the mantra I've had with our portfolio managers internally is corporates are going to lose earnings, households are going to lose income, building owners are going to have people missing rent payments. Policymakers need to move up the lost income so that the small business that closes down reopen so that the household that loses the paycheck can return to spending when things clear up. Jonathan mentioned the struggle that businesses and households will face in the months ahead. In particular, he mentioned the impact on companies. We've seen this come to life through weeks of stock market ups and downs that caused the 11-year bull market to come to an end. With the markets at a low, does this actually paint a buying opportunity for equities? We asked Kate Moore for her view. I've been watching commentators on CNBC and Bloomberg and even regular news channels debate whether or not this precipitous decline in the equity market is really opening up a buying opportunity for stocks. 
And my gut instinct is, yes, especially for people with longer-term time horizons. And time horizon really matters here. But, you know, I would caution anyone about getting too cute about trying to time the market at this point or spending too many of their chips before we have much clarity on the duration of this crisis. You know, we don't know the length of this crisis. We don't know the depth of the crisis. And we don't know the efficacy of policy. And those things make it really difficult to say in the very near term that we're going to have a big pop. I also just want to issue a little bit of a warning about people who are talking about the market being cheap at this point. Cheap is a really tough term, in particular because we actually don't know how to price assets or how to forecast earnings in this environment. You know, longer term, we can say we might return to a trend revenue or trend earnings profile, but in the very near term, analysts and strategists and portfolio managers can't forecast earnings. And I want to see widespread slashing of earnings estimates and people kind of pricing in more recessionary outcomes before I can say we're starting to find real value in the market. So a buying opportunity longer term, but you have to be what I would say very disciplined and average in to higher quality assets instead of trying to put all of your money to work just because we've had a 30% decline. As Kate mentioned, a long-term investment horizon is key. We asked her a follow-up. Where does she see opportunity in the stock market? Okay, so here's what I would be doing right now. And this is what I am doing, which is asking myself, what is this experience telling me about behaviors? Where am I witnessing kind of discontinuous change in the way individuals are interacting with each other or with their technology? And what are the companies and industries that are going to be positioned to take advantage of that change once we come out of this crisis? There are three areas where these opportunities are really fresh in mind. The first is around technology. You know, most of us, like myself right now, are working from home. I've got my golden retriever next to me, and she is acting as an incredible wingman on this podcast. We are testing out new software. For many companies, as so many of their workers work from home, we are actually finding vulnerabilities in the system. So I think there's going to be increased spend on cybersecurity. I would look at software and cloud names, and then also companies in the 5G space that have the opportunity to really facilitate fast and seamless connections as really interesting for the future. The second area is healthcare infrastructure. We have renewed focus on making sure we have not just the physical infrastructure in healthcare, but also the right types of drug investment and pipeline to really serve and help populations when we face these types of crises. And the third thing I would look at is overall global supply chains. I think the experience that companies have been having when country borders are closing and they may be impaired in terms of their supply chain I think that experience is leading them to think about their investments and bringing things closer to their end market. And that may lead to a lot of really interesting opportunities. So those areas around technology, healthcare, and supply chains are where I think we should be doing work and not necessarily trying to get too cute around impaired sectors that may deserve to be trading at a discount and lagging behind others. Kate talked about the potential opportunity in stocks globally. But what about emerging markets more specifically, including China? We turn back to Jeff Shen for our 10th question from our clients. Given the gradual reboot we are seeing in emerging market economies, 
Is there an opportunity in emerging market stocks or should we be more selective? I think we need to be more selective in emerging markets. Certainly, it's true that the emerging market has declined significantly given the coronavirus. But at the same time, I think there are three elements for us to think about being more selective in emerging markets. I think number one, clearly, is that coronavirus would have a global impact. No country is really immune to it. At the same time, I think different countries are certainly adopting slightly different public health responses. And the fiscal flexibility alongside with the monetary policy response can be different across different emerging market countries. And I think that's going to drive quite a bit of a differential in terms of investment performance across different countries. I think a second thing that we probably haven't talked about enough in different media is that oil price certainly has dropped significantly during this period. And that is having a huge differentiating impact to different countries, depending on if you are oil importer or exporter, certainly that makes a huge difference given the drop in oil price. I think that's the second lens that we can think about how we can be more selective in emerging market. Last but not the least is that I do think that as we adjust to this new reality that's unfolding in front of us, I think the importance of technology, the importance of you know, the ability to work virtually is here to stay. I do think that there is going to be a lot of evolution and changes and impact coming from technology that is going to probably speed up given the current coronavirus crisis alongside with a biotech development, which certainly is quite important. So I think technology is probably another angle when we think about emerging market in the sense that the companies or the countries which are actually producing additional technology IP versus the countries that actually need to import some of these technologies into their respective countries. I think that's also going to be another wedge to drive some of the cross-country differences. On the equity side, one thing that Kate and Jeff both mentioned is the importance of industries that are helping to drive this new normal, particularly technology. Turning to the fixed income side, we've seen that volatility in the stock market has driven investors into bonds as a safe haven. As a result, 10-year Treasury yields have slipped below 1% in the U.S. for the first time in history. The Federal Reserve also cut interest rates back to zero. Question number 11. With market volatility continuing, could we see negative bond yields here in the U.S.? That's not something I ever foresaw, but I think given the economic uncertainty and how different this scenario is, unlike anything we've ever seen before, it seems it's entirely possible. That's Peter Hayes, head of BlackRock's Municipal Fixed Income Group. Just think about what the Fed is doing with their balance sheet, buying treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, etc., and taking out securities from the market and adding another source of demand into an area where we're seeking long-duration safe assets. So I think it is possible when you look globally around the world, when you look at the potential for further slowdown in the U.S. economy, when you look at what the Fed has done in moving rates back to zero, I think at some point in time, we actually could see negative bond yields here in the United States. Beyond driving lower bond yields, the coronavirus has impacted the fixed income market in other ways. In particular, social distancing will likely impact the municipal bond market or bonds that finance government-owned projects like roads, schools, and airports. We asked Peter our next question from clients. How will social distancing impact municipal bonds? I think the timing is very key here. I think some things will certainly have a short impact, 
I think other things, we may change our behaviors, we may change the way we interact. There's a lot of implications to that in terms of longer-term credit in the municipal market. And some of that ultimately will be dictated by how fast they can get a cure or some type of vaccine to market for the broader population and give people certainty they won't be impacted. Some of the less vulnerable areas that we identified are states, school districts, utilities, single-family housing, electric, we all think are actually quite safe in the long term. Some of the more vulnerable places like mass transit, small universities, smaller cities even, especially those that are very dependent on a concentrated tax base that is likely to be eroded here in this environment. I think one thing to really impress upon people here is the fact that this is not going to be a systemic downturn of the entire municipal market. Are we likely to see defaults? We are, but they're going to be isolated to the high yield part of the market, which is a natural part of that sector to begin with. So I think it's important to really be able to distinguish the lower credit quality part of the market from the higher credit quality part of the market. And even in that segment of the market, there will be winners and losers. But I think it's important to realize that what the government is doing, the tax base, the momentum the U.S. economy had going into this will all ultimately lead to a positive outcome for municipal credit. So with this in mind, where is there opportunity in the municipal bond market? We turn back to Peter. There are clearly going to be winners and losers. I think credit research is all more important today, given the economic uncertainty, than it was a month or two ago or a year or two ago. I think structure and liquidity will be very important in the market. We saw a severe bout of illiquidity in the market, and we are probably likely to see more of those as this story begins to unfold. So I think you need up in quality, more liquid securities. I think the structure of your security is very important. And clearly, yields are higher today, more so than they were even a month ago. So for those searching for income, that's a better opportunity. I will say that munis continue to be a good ballast to your equity risk when you look at the longer term. Peter talked about the opportunity in the municipal market, and we heard from Kate and Jeff earlier about opportunity in the equity market. But we posed our 14th and final question to all of our guests. What's the most important thing for investors to know? The most important thing for investors to know right now is that this too shall pass. And this is not the time to lose your overall investment focus. You know, there's that famous investor, Jesse Livermore, who said that money is made by sitting and not trading and not trying to get too cute with the market right now. And I would say that no one is smart enough to time the bottom. But if you are calm and focused and disciplined and continuing to do your research, you're going to come out the other side, a much stronger investor with a much better portfolio. This is an unprecedented time. This is a time of extreme volatility, but it's also a moment to keep a level head and make decisions with the long term in mind. So we've said a couple of things. One, while we pulled back our recommendations to be overweight stocks and credit markets, which we had in place at the beginning of the year, a little more than a month ago, this is a moment to stay invested to stay near those longer-term allocations, you know, your benchmarks, your strategic allocation, what have you, and to see it through from that home base. As you rebalance, as you get back to those home bases, this is exactly the moment to be thinking about stepping into sustainable exposures for the long term. This is a moment to be opportunistic. 
to not necessarily be taking outright calls on equity markets or credit markets over the next six to 12 months. This is a very uncertain time still, but there are certain themes that are emerging. We think countries like the United States and China, which have more policy capacity and the willingness to use it, are relatively attractive exposures versus some parts of the global economy where that's less so. Japan, Europe, emerging market exposures further away from China. We think that some of the higher quality, lower volatility factor exposures, you know, like I said, just quality, minimum volatility, these are important resilient exposures for the moment. I think the most important thing for investors to know right now is simply that market volatility does happen. I mean, this is difficult to describe just as market volatility. I think there was a lot of irrational pricing of assets, a lot of bad news were priced in assets for a period of time because the market was so irrational. But you go back historically, if you have a long-term investment horizon, typically these periods of volatility end up being very good buying opportunities from a long-term standpoint. And I think that's the way it has to be viewed. I think there's going to be better days ahead. I don't know how bad the economic data is going to get. My guess is it's going to get extremely bad and that we're going to have months of bad data. But I do think that 12 months from now, we are going to be back to going out to dinner. I am certainly going to want a vacation. I think we're going to be back to our stores and buying. And what we want is to ensure that the businesses and workers that provide us with services and create economic activity and households and families, that we're all going to go back to more normal behavior 12 months from now. So in any case, I do think there's better days ahead, and I think that's an important thing to keep in mind as we go through what's probably going to be a very difficult few coming months. Eventually, given the policy responses, both on the public health front and also on the monetary and fiscal front, I do think that there is going to be a recovery on the horizon. I think the recovery is probably a little bit further down the line than people would like. I'm not so sure that we're going to go back to the normal operating mode that we knew before we coming into the crisis. I do think that the world is going to be quite different going forward. And I think two potential areas that can be quite different. I think number one is that on the geopolitical front, this is clearly an event that has huge geopolitics implications. I think the world is going to be probably less likely to be globalized versus into a bit more nationalistic and also deglobalization is certainly more on the horizon. The second big trend that I think we need to think about when we go through the recovery phase is certainly around technology. And I think the fundamental challenge that we face through the coronavirus certainly shows how important technology can be. There's going to be a lot of changes ahead. So despite the turmoil in markets caused by the coronavirus, what have we learned? Market volatility can be unnerving, but having a long-term perspective is the key to working through it. On our next episode of The Bid, we'll continue to explore how the coronavirus is impacting global markets with our country heads across Asia, Europe, and the U.S. We'll see you next time. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. 
The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management U.K. Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office, 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N2DL, telephone plus 44020-7743-3000, registered in England and Wales, number 202-0394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 2000-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL, 230-523-BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com. Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.